Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of What's Next Live. And I have the absolute pleasure of welcoming Katie Milkman to the show, who is the author of How to Change. It is just a pleasure to have you today, Katie. Thank you for joining me. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. All right. So let me give you this uh, bio, which I, I'm going to give the short version, but, you know, let, let's go with that. So Katie is a professor at Wharton the University of Pennsylvania, host of Charles Schwab's popular behavioral economics podcast, Choiceology, which is such a great name, and the former president of the Society for Judgment and Decision-Making. She is the co-founder and co-director of the Behavior Change for Good Initiative, a research center with the mission of advancing the science of lasting behavior change, whose work is chronicled by Freakonomics Radio. And then, of course, her new book, How to Change, uh, the science of getting from where you are to where you want to be. So again, welcome, Katie. Thank you. I'm excited to be here again. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about this amazing, amazing book, because, you know, I often talk about change is hard, but possible that I set New Year's resolutions and by January 15th, they're gone. And, you know, we are asking employees, we're asking society, we're asking, you know, kids, schools healthcare, education, everybody to change. And it's getting harder and harder because so much is coming at them. So, you know, I know we're going to unpack, you know, how to change and what are the best things to do. But when you begin a conversation with executives and people about how to even approach change, where do you start? Actually, the first thing I normally talk about is uh, an important misconception, which might seem like a funny place to start to break something before you fix it. But I, I think a misconception that makes change harder than it needs to be is that there's a one size fits all solution, that there are handy, beautiful tools that we can pull off the shelf from best selling books that will surely work for you. Like um, the idea of, you know, setting big audacious goals, that's all you have to do. And then, and then you're set or um, visualize success. And then surely you'll achieve the change you seek, or that there's some magic solution to creating habits and putting them on, on autopilot that will work forever after. And really none of those things, unfortunately work for everyone. And none of them are universally useful. And instead of these sort of Per perfect solutions, what research shows is that it depends on what the barriers are, the different things are holding us back at different points in time, the different organizations face different challenges when it comes to change, and that diagnosing what is the barrier is absolutely critical because the solution will then depend. So that's where I always start, is highlighting actually the importance of matching. We understand the importance of strategy in so many other parts of our life, but often don't apply it when it comes to behavior change. And it's just as critical, if not more so, in this in this domain. Well, I think lots of people I talk to when you, I talk about change, and I, you know, I, I work at Salesforce, and I often say we don't sell technology, we sell change. And change is hard, right? Because our technology can enable sort of this art of the possible, which you could do a lot of things. It's like, how do you pick? <laughs> like, how Absolutely. do you pick where you're going to focus? And so, you know, as they go down this decision tree, um, you know, how do you say yes and no? Or what what's sort of the gate, you know, of yes and no when you're saying, should I change this? Should I not change this? Is there something that people should pay attention to? 
Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I think um, one thing we know is that if you're contemplating change, right, if you're sort of thinking this might be right for me, if I, it might be time to make this change in the way I'm mentoring my employees, or if there might be a change I want to make in my personal life, it's actually really likely that you should make that change. That's the first thing I'll say, because we know that people are generally averse to change. We're status quo biased, as behavioral scientists would put it. Whatever the current status quo is, it's really hard for us to make that deviation. And if we think it might be right, it probably is. There's this really interesting research that was done by uh, Steve Levitt, co-author of, of the best-selling book, Freakonomics. When he became uh, well-known because of his book, he tells the story that lots of people started asking him for life advice. Like, you know, I'm not sure if I should get a divorce. I don't know if I should start this entrepreneurial venture. So he was, he was faced with all these questions. He didn't know, but a lot of them came down to, should I make a change or not? And he got really curious. And so what he actually did was a clever experiment on the Freakonomics blog, where he invited people who are contemplating a change to play a little game, to let him flip a coin, heads you change, tails you don't. And of course, lots of people didn't take the advice of this coin flip, but enough did that more people who got heads changed than people who got tails. And then he followed up with thousands of people later and said, how did that work out for you? And what he found is that the people who were encouraged to change, changed at a slightly higher rate than others and reported being happier than others, which makes a lot of sense given what we know about status quo bias, people's tendency to underchange. So the first piece of advice is just, if you're on the precipice, it actually probably is the case that it'll make you a little happier to make that adjustment, that there is something, if you've been thinking about doing it, you probably need a little push. That's not really the focus of my book. My book is about how to change once you decide that you want to, but but I do wanna encourage people who are thinking about it to, to take the leap because we underinvest in change. And then how do you get started? So now you're to the how, right? So how do you get started? So I've decided I want to change whatever those deciding factors were for you. And now I'm at the point of, okay, what's the first thing I do? And, and one thing that I, you know, I often hear is, well, I made the change and I didn't see the results I thought I was going to get. So I'm just going to change back to the way that it was, that they just don't have enough patience potentially. So they get started and they never hang on long enough to see that change come through. So it's sort of two sides to the same question. How do you get started? And then how do you help people really hang on long enough to see that change come to fruition? Yeah, well, let me actually start with one of the barriers to change, which is the challenge of getting started. So that's one of the things that we have to overcome. And a lot of my research has looked at that question of how do we actually take the leap once we've decided we want to, how do we overcome that inertia to get started? And interestingly, there's, there's evidence that we've found that there are moments when we're more motivated to change than others and, and more able perhaps to change when given a little nudge. So these moments arise at fresh starts in our lives, moments that feel like a new beginning. And it turns out the way we think about time actually isn't linear. We think about our lives as if we're characters in a book that has chapters. And at chapter breaks, we're more motivated to change. So a chapter break, right, you could think about eras in your life, like, you know, the consulting years or the college years or the years living in Boston, whatever those era markers are for you, they can be bound by things like a year. And this is part of why New Year's is a really popular time for change. There's a social element to it now. People ask you if you've changed, but also there's the sense that you're opening a new chapter in life. And you can say, you know, that was the old me who didn't 
get in shape last year, who didn't, uh, you know, really hit it out of the park at work and whatever it was that you were trying to do, maybe you didn't quit smoking. That was the old me, you can say, and this is the new me and the new me can do it. So you feel that dissociation. It makes you more motivated. You're more likely to step back also and think big picture about your goals at these moments. So we found that New Year's is a moment, of course, when people are more motivated to change, but also there's other moments like that on the calendar. So the start of a new week, the start of a new month, the celebration of holidays that we associate with change, like I think Labor Day more than, say, Valentine's Day, the celebration of a birthday. These are all moments when we see a natural uptick in people's goal setting on popular goal setting websites. They're likely to search for goal-related terms like diet on Google. They're likely to visiting the gym. Uh, and also when we encourage people to change. So we send them an invitation to, for instance, enroll in a 401k program that their employer is offering and start saving if they haven't been saving yet. And we tie the opportunity to a fresh start moment like a birthday or the start of spring, we see more enthusiasm, more people start saving, more people are saving nine months later. So the first thing is actually find that moment that's gonna be motivating to you that might feel like a chapter break that's gonna cause you to be ready to take the plunge. That's my first piece of advice because almost all of us, this, is, this isn't one size fits all, uh, but because you have to tailor what's the one that feels like a fresh start to you, but almost all of us do experience that challenge of, of figuring out when to get started. Well, and you use a great story about it with Google uh, in your book, you know, of talking about this kind of fresh start. And, and I found it really fascinating because, you know, there's lots of things offered to us as employees, but it doesn't mean we take advantage of them all, right? And so there was a disconnect between all the things that were offered and then all the things that were taken advantage of. Maybe you could share that story. Yeah, this is really the story that got me motivated to study the fresh start effect, which is what I just described. I was visiting Google about a decade ago, giving a talk to a bunch of their HR leaders, they call them the people analytics team at Google, about some of the research I'd done on behavior change. How do we nudge people to change their health decisions to be you know, visiting the gym more regularly? How do we nudge people to save more for retirement, to be more productive at work, to take advantage of all of Google's wonderful benefits programs, their educational offerings? Because a lot of these offerings, even though they knew, the HR leaders knew they would help employees, these Googlers were not taking advantage at the rates they they maybe could be. So the question I got after I presented my work saying, here's some ways we can nudge them towards change was, is there some ideal moment to encourage employees to make changes in their lives? Are there some times that are better than others when people are more motivated to change when we could remind them, hey, we have these great benefits programs. Hey, we have this great, this great training program where you could learn a new programming language and it's free. And maybe people would be more inspired to change at those moments. And that's really what got me started working on the research I did with Heng Chen Dai of UCLA, Jason Reese, uh, also at Wharton, on the fresh start effect. And, and we uncovered that there are these moments that do seem to be particularly ideal for making a change. And then, you know, beyond that, one step beyond that is, okay, so the fresh start effect, but now I need to keep doing the change or sort of I got I need to keep doing it. But on the other side of that as well that you talked about, which I found really fascinating is communicating why the change is important. And you use some really great examples like the flu shot, right? As, as, a, as an example. So it's the, I need to keep doing it, but if you're the person who said solicited, I want to change, I need help, is very different than, well, I'm not looking to change or I don't wanna change. And it needs to be communicated to you that you probably need to do something different. So that's sort of two sides to it, right? Like I want to, 
and then someone's trying to convince me to change. What's what's the difference between those two? Yeah, absolutely. One is a persuasion problem, right? Where you're trying to change someone's mind, you're trying to compel them to make a change. And it turns out there's a bit of a persuasion element to to even the changes we want to make, because we have to find the right moment, the motivation, we have to get over the hump. So a, a lot of the principles I talk about in the book I wrote can both be used to motivate other people to change, right? You can nudge someone at a fresh start moment, or a person can take advantage of a fresh start moment themselves. Um, so they can be used for persuasion or or self-help, if you will, self self um, change. So there's a lot of commonalities, but it, there are also some differences, important distinctions. Let me actually talk about one really common barrier to change and a solution that I think works differently depending on whether or not it's a persuasion challenge or the individual trying to make change in their own life. And that is uh, the challenge of self-control. So a really common barrier to change is that it doesn't feel enjoyable in the moment to do the thing that's good for me in the long run, right? So it's not fun while I'm exercising. Maybe it might not be fun to have that difficult conversation with a mentee where you give them some advice that's going to make them a better employee, but that might not be really fun to hear if it's not entirely positive, right? So you can think about a lot of things that feel a little bit like a chore that it's good for you. You have to, you know, say studying harder or pushing through to hit a deadline at work. These things often aren't fun in the moment. And self-control is required to actually push through. So most of us have a misconception, and this has been shown by research by Ayelet Fishbach of the University of Chicago, Caitlin Woolley of Cornell, brilliant work showing that most of us think we should just find the most effective way to pursue whatever goal it is we have around change, and we will get there eventually, right? You choose the maximally efficient path to, to success at the gym, say the Stairmaster. A small number of people choose a different approach and they choose a path that'll be most instantly gratifying, most fun. So you go to Zumba class with a friend for your workouts and it's not as effective in the moment, but interestingly, those people persist longer. If you find a way to make it instantly gratifying in the moment to pursue change, you end up sticking to it because we're wired to overvalue instant gratification. Anything that feels like a chore, maybe we'll do it once, maybe we'll even do it twice, but we're really likely to keep coming back to it. And most goals require persistence, right? So um, finding ways to make it really enjoyable turns out to be an incredibly important part of success when it comes to change for so many of us, where the change is a bit of a chore, finding ways to make it fun. So here's where this relates to the difference between persuasion and changing yourself. For yourself, the tools of making it fun are, are fairly straightforward. You know, there's things that we now have proven, make it more enjoyable to do stuff. And, and it's not shocking. Some of the things we can do is link it with something you find fun. I call this temptation bundling. So only let yourself say, binge watch your favorite TV shows while exercising at the gym, or go to your favorite restaurant while taking an employee out for a conversation where you're gonna give them feedback. You only get to go to that restaurant you crave when you're spending time having those important conversations. Or only let yourself pick up your favorite beverage at Starbucks when heading to the library if you're a student to hit the books. So there's all sorts of ways that you can do this, temptation bundling, but it's really hard to impose that on someone else. If you wanna persuade someone to change, Organizations sometimes use gamification. They try to make it fun in that way, but it can be perceived as manipulative and it might not be fun if someone's imposing it on me. So there's different challenges if you're an organization trying to use this principle that we're gonna persist longer when it's fun. It's a different challenge, a different needle to thread than if you're an individual. 
Well, you know, there's there's so much there to unpack, but you know, there are people who are individual contributors, right? Where they work, like you've got entrepreneurs who have to be self-starters. Then you have managers and leaders who might have to take all that you just said and not only change themselves, right? But they have to change everybody around them. Um, and so I've had Whitney Johnson on a couple of times and we talk a lot about the S-curve and self-disruption is sort of the start of how you could ever disrupt you know, your business, that you have to change sort of what you're doing and that ebbs and flows, right? You change it, you start to settle into it and then you got to change again, right? There's sort of no end point. Um, anything over the last 18 months where I've, that, that you've seen where I feel like now it's this whole reskill, I need to change sort of what I do. You know, and and a lot of people have taken the last 18 months to reflect on what it is they're doing and they might want to change their career or change where they live or change where they work. I mean, there's kind of a lot of change happening. And so, you know, how do you how do you compartmentalize that for someone who's an individual contributor versus somebody who's a leader who has to change themselves? Right. And change those around and persuade those around them, I must say, I might say. Right. There are two of yeah. the sides of that. Yeah, it's so interesting. And by the way, I love that you pointed out that this is sort of an inflection point that this last 18 months, obviously, uh, you know, it's been, we've had a tragic loss of life. The reason we've all been working from home has been the most horrific reason you could really almost imagine. And yet it has forced reflection. It has be, it, it's a funny thing to call a fresh start because of the negative connotation, the positive way of talking about a fresh start, but it has been a disruption. There's certainly been a chapter break. And as we're all, hope, you know, in the U.S. at least, starting to come out of this period, people are going back to the office. People are going back to some of the rhythms of life before the pandemic, thanks to these amazing vaccines. We have an opportunity, and it's an important opportunity. There's a couple things that I think are really important about it. One is it's an opportunity for reflection. As you said, a lot of us have done that naturally, but anyone who hasn't and is about on this precipice of going back to the way things were to some degree, it's a huge opportunity to set some big goals, maybe not too many, because there's research showing if you set a, a series of goals and make a series of plans that can actually derail you because it becomes demotivating to see how much you have to accomplish, but maybe one or two big goals. Uh, this is a really great time to do that. We know from the research on the fresh start effect. The other thing I want to point to actually is this is so nerdy, but I'm a nerd of self, you know, obviously I'm a nerd. I wouldn't have written a book about the science of change if I weren't. There's this really <laughs> fascinating study that was done seven years ago when there was a, a strike in London among tube workers, subway workers in London, and a bunch of different subway stations were shut down for a few days this is going to sound bizarre how this is related to the present moment, but bear with me. So all of these tube stations were shut down and lots of commuters had to get to work a new way. They were forced to experiment to, to try a new route. And what I think is so interesting is, you know, most people, and that, that's sort of what we've had for the last year, like a lot of our ways of life were shut down and we were forced to try a new way. So when things reopened, the researchers found 95% of people went back to the way things were. You know, it, it was worse before. Like, I will never go to another online concert. They were worse than, than in-person concerts. And so, you know, 95% of things we go back to the way they were. I look forward to seeing smiles again instead of masks, um, you know, in the workplace and so on. But 5% of people actually discovered a better route. So some people lived on parts of the subway map that were distorted. They were much more likely, it turns out, to discover, oh, I wasn't taking the fastest route to work. I was forced to experiment. I found something better. And I think another thing that's really important at this moment is for us to think about 
what were the things that we discovered because we were forced into this new work relationship and this new relationship with the world that actually were better, right? Was it really wonderful to have family Zoom dinners once a month with people who lived far apart and who you didn't see regularly? Um, maybe there were some meetings that you used to get on a plane and travel to that you don't need to travel to anymore. And I think in addition to setting goals at this fresh start moment, doing some really careful reflecting on what did work and we, what we want to take forward. Because again, I mentioned status quo bias. We tend to experiment too much. We stick to our ways. Research has shown this time and again. And because we were forced through this disruption to try some different things, we certainly learned from that about at least maybe 5% of the things we were forced to try were good. And maybe we want to continue them. So that's the other message I would say for anyone who's a leader or just living their own life and thinking about how to be more effective to, to make sure you do at this moment. Yeah. And I think there's research out that, that change or habits change in like 60 something days. It's like the mid 60 range of a personal habit will change. And we're obviously 14, depending on where you're listening to this in the world, right? 14, 15, 16, 17 months into this, some places are still in the middle of it. And so habits have significantly changed. So like we did some research around things like contactless payment, like 93% of people who use contact want to continue using it. Like that's a really high percentage. Like it was much more convenient. I didn't have to, you know, do all this stuff. You know, I could get the receipt emailed to me. I didn't need to do all those things or even grocery shopping. Right. And, you know, I used to go to the grocery store every week or every couple of days. Now I'm in an order, you know, two or three times a month and I'll go to the store once a month. Like some of that will change, you know, even the home working out, you mentioned the gym, like, you know, will people go back to the gym? Will they keep working out at home? And so I feel like some of this um, has overcorrected. I'm hoping that, you know, we'll get back to some kind of middle ground of maybe not back to the way that it was. And then I, I hope it doesn't completely stay where it is today. Now there are things that we needed to change systemically. Like I'm not talking about that, right? I'm talking about like grocery shopping, and yes, going to the gym. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not right. talking about so systemic stuff. Your friends and, yeah. and you know having those important relationships face to face. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, I, now I have to jump in because again, I, I study habits and I will say the the finding that it takes 60 days to form a habit is one very small study with only, in only one context with survey data. And actually, I'm part of a team led by Colin Kammerer at Caltech that's been doing a much bigger machine learning based approach to understanding how long it takes to create a habit. And our data suggests it really depends on the context that if it comes to something like exercise, where it's not an automatic behavior, where you have to you know, get in a car maybe and drive to the gym to get your workout in. And back in the olden days, uh, it can take many months. If it's something like hand sanitizing, if you're a hospital caregiver, it can take weeks. So the amount of time it takes to form a habit varies, but certainly in the last 18 months, some have formed. But we also know that at these I call them fresh start moments, moments of disruption, moments of change where you're opening a new chapter. Habits are very easily disrupted. And so I, I do think we will see that even things that feel like they've habituated because we're going to have a disruption of people shifting their routines. They were working from home. Now they have to go back to the office. Their kids were at home. Now their kids are in camp. Whatever it is, any kind of disruption, even, even if it's psychological or if it's a physical disruption, tends to disrupt habits. So I think we're going to see a huge amount of return as people start thinking about what are the things I missed? I'm in a new era. I want to right. pick up new habits and change new things. So I'm very optimistic that some of the stuff we don't want to see stick won't. Well, yeah, and I think that, and, I, and, and I'm fascinated by the, and I knew the 66 days was a small study, and I know that there's kind of a range, and you can't just say, you know, by average, right? But, but the good news is, is that you can change. It takes time. It takes consistency and persistency, and sometimes patience. And then you have to be, understand kind of how to fail, 
um, which uh, through change, which I, I, I'm guessing you've got an opinion on that, just this kind of, you know, getting up after failure, if there's a lot of change going on, how, how do you sort of round that out with people? Yeah, I love that you brought that up. I, I think it's the most important part, honestly, of most change, because actually somewhere between 80 to 90% of our attempts to change do face setbacks, right? It's the reason that people are always touting the New Year's resolution statistics about how many New Year's resolutions fail. Any kind of goal, whether it's a New Year's resolution or another one, it has a very high likelihood that there will be at least two steps back at some point, right? There will be some some mishaps. And one of the most important things about change is having some kind of plan to get back up again when you hit those roadblocks. One of my favorite studies that I describe in the book that relates to this is a study that was done by one of my colleagues, Marissa Sharif at the Wharton School and Suzanne Shu at Cornell University of a really simple tool they used to help people stay on track and set big goals that will be effective, but not get too dis, dis, um, dissuaded or, or disconcerted when things go wrong, because they will. It's a really simple study where if people are trying to achieve a goal, they encourage people to create an emergency reserve. Meaning if you say want to exercise every day, I'll use that example because it's a really easy one to, for all of us to relate to. So you want to work out every day of the week. It turns out it's better to say, I'm going to try to work out seven days a week. That's my goal, but I'll give myself two emergency reserves. So that's two days. If something goes wrong and I fall down, it's not going to count against me. We'll still stay on track. Um, that's much more effective than setting a goal of I'm going to do it five days a week, which by the way is identical, or I'm going to do it seven days a week. By giving yourself a little bit of leeway, a little bit of wiggle room, not too much and calling in an emergency, people end up being far more effective sticking to their goals because we need to recognize sometimes we'll fall down and we can't just throw up our hands and give up. Uh, I also did some research on goal, the importance of flexibility when you're forming a habit. So when people are trying to form a really a new habit, it's important actually to be flexible and not too rigid in the way you try to form it. So rather than saying, I'm going to do it at the same time every day, we actually found that getting people to try doing it at different times leads to a more robust habit because when something goes wrong and you can't do it at your optimal time, you'll form a brittle habit if you're trying for too much consistency. But if you build flexibility into the way you build your new routines, that actually improves outcomes. So these are just two sort of micro examples. The more we can do to recognize that mistakes happen, that there are setbacks and that we need a plan for getting back on the wagon, the more successful we can be in our change attempts. Yeah. And, and I'm going to, we're, we're almost out of time, but I, I'm going to, I'm going to just double down on something that you said about um, short-term, medium-term, long-term goals. Cause I think people, you know, miss, misstep there because they make maybe too many long-term, they can't see sort of these small wins. And so, you know, as people are looking to change, as they're setting these goals, as they're looking for these new chapters and these moments in time, um, and we're in the middle of this great reset, you know, sort of not a fresh start, but kind of a great reset, you know, um, how do you help them? What's the, what's the order of short-term goal versus medium versus long-term goal that you would suggest people use in order to try to increase the likelihood of success, but not perfection, right? Because you're going to have failures and you're going to have to pick yourself up. But what's your recommendation on that? I love that you went there because this is so important. I think so many of us set those big goals, you know, this year I want to run a marathon or, you know, this year I want to achieve this sales goal. And it, it's really long-term. And when you make something that long-term, I mentioned 
self-control issues, present bias or the tendency to focus on the here and now? And is it fun? And am I making progress actually really works against us because it's so big and so long-term it's easy for us to say, oh, I'll never get there and let me focus on something else today instead. It's super important as a result of that to break things down into bite-sized chunks, into say a daily goal. And there's great research showing, for instance, that if you encourage people to save $5 a day rather than $150 a month, which are the same thing, you see dramatically higher rates at which people take it up. Or if you set a goal for someone to volunteer four hours a week instead of 200 hours a year, you see a lot more volunteering. This is some work my doctoral student Anish Rai has led. So when we break down that big goal into a bite-sized, what am I going to do today or this week? And then we make a concrete plan about, you know, how will I do it? Where will I do it? When will I do it? That makes it much clearer what our commitment is. It's harder to procrastinate, put it off to the future because you say, if I, you know, I'm going to be breaking my commitment if I don't do this thing. And that bite-sized progress makes you feel like you're, you're building momentum towards something bigger. So really important to break those big goals down and then we see much more success. Well, this has been fantastic, Katie. <clears throat> Once again, the author of How to Change, um, go pick up a copy. You know, she's just kind of given you a taste of this great framework of how you can really implement change so we can get from where we are to where we want to go. So how can people keep in touch with you, Katie, going forward? Thank you for having me again, by the way. I just want to say this was really fun. I appreciate the opportunity to, to speak with you today. Um, people who are interested in learning more, I have a website, ktymilkman.com, just like Katie Perry with the Y. Thank goodness for someone else who spells it that way. I know you also have an unusual spelling. Uh, it has on my website you know, links to the book, the podcast, the research I do at the Wharton School, and you know information on how to contact me. Follow me on Twitter at at Katie underscore Milkman and so on. Excellent. Well, this is just a great time. You know, I'm sure when you were writing this book, you did not know we were going to be in the middle of a pandemic and that so much change was going to be thrust upon us. Um, but I think that, you know, everybody's anxiety levels are at such a heightened state right now that understanding how you can manage through some of this change that's being you know, thrown at us. And then we also are, you know, instigating ourselves is, is just really, really critical. So I thank you for putting out such great work and helping everybody find their way through to change. So I appreciate you joining me here today on What's Next Live. So thank you again, Katie. Have a great rest of your day, everybody. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye.